0: History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our After Show podcast, where we look back at the most recent episode, Episode 82, Coal in Wales during 1920 to 1930. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out, or else there will be. Spoilers ahead. We're currently not in the office. Could you please leave your answer after the beep? Hello, my name is Ryan Weir, and I'm here in the HHE studio with the anthracite to my lignite, it's Mr. Peter Goddard.
1: Hey, sounds like you learned something from the episode. (laughs) And I got to be (laughs) anthracite, that's great.
0: And we are joined as ever by the dirty digger of Dalgarog, it's the judge himself, it's Mr. Paul Dursley. Kreuzer. Croiso, ooh. What does that mean? That's Welsh. Yeah, well,
2: yes, I gathered that. (laughs) Isn't that hello in Welsh? I think it's hello. Well, hello to
0: you too. Multilingual Thursday. Now, Peter, I've been laid up this week with a nasty bout of black lung disease and, as such, I've forgotten everything you talked about in the last episode. So, would you mind reminding me what happened in, let's say, 60 seconds? Not a problem, Ryan. When would you like me to start? Do it now!
1: We headed to the land of the Red Dragon, to the Welsh Valleys, to discover coal, the mineral that brought wealth and hardship to the area in equal measures. We met Kerry Thomas from the Big Pit Museum, who taught us about house coal, steam coal and anthracite, and he explained the skills and effort required for the cutting of coal. We also learned about Bert Coombs, a miner and also the author of These Poor Hands, a chronicle of the life that was lived in the Welsh mines in the 1920s, featuring hard work, death and injury, but on the flip side, the wages were poor. We also learned about Paul Robeson, the American singer famous for Old Man River, who developed a close and enduring love and respect for the South Wales miners, with whom he felt a kinship in the struggles and unfairness of life, and who managed to still perform for his Welsh friends even after the American government took away his passport. And we learned that if you do fancy going underground in real life in a Welsh mine, you should head to the Big Pit National Coal Museum. But do bring your own mandrill. That was last
0: week's episode. Summarize nicely, nice one son Now we're over to a young Dursley Who's gonna tell you what he thought of thee He'll take you apart without any care He's the lovely Paul Dursley The lovely Paul Dursley Ah, yes, I remember now. And what an episode it was, Pete. We went deep, deep down into the Welsh underground. It was a dark, damp, horrid affair. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Not much in the way of lightness other than the beauty of Wales and the beautiful voice of Paul Robson.
1: And the solidarity of the miners together enduring that hardship and trauma. Oh, to enough to of overcome. this socialist claptrap.
2: I had enough of this listening to your blood. (laughs)
0: Well, that brings us neatly to Paul, because we are not here for my opinion. We are here for your opinion, the opinion of Judge Dursley. So, Paul, before we get to the verdict, why don't you give us an overview of your initial thoughts on episode 82?
2: Well, I had low expectations on this episode because it was too easy. It was so easy, wasn't it?
1: It was crazy easy.
2: He should get marks off for it being easy. However, I was mildly surprised.
0: Dang it! I mean, great. You can't have an easy one and get a good grade. This is outrageous!
1: So tell us about how you were pleasantly, frankly, delighted, Paul, by the episode.
2: Well, I liked all the little facts about coal in it because it got me thinking that, you know, now coal is nothing. But then it was ubiquitous.
0: Yes, you know, everyone.
2: Everybody. Used it. Everybody had to have coal. Virtually. Every railway station had a duplicate coal station, which admitted it was just a bit of a platform where the coal was delivered. And this was virtually every station had this.
1: And houses would have a coal hole, wouldn't they? It's just yeah, sort of- houses
2: would have I, I can remember my parents' first house having a coal hole that was converted into part of the
1: kitchen. Actually, on that subject, Paul, one of the things Kerry told me was that the coal isn't for energy, actually. It's used for filtration. That's now the primary use of welsh coal Well, what they turn it into charcoal and then... yeah it's used for the filtering out of nasties that's it's uh excellent material for apparently mm. well as, as you say
2: as as you said on the thing i did know that uh welsh coal was about the finest grade of coal that you could actually get
0: that surprised me i had no idea about that and the fact that it was smokeless i don't know quite what goes into making it smokeless I think it's
1: the higher carbon, Paul. Is that right?
0: I, I, w- I would think so. And you were, you were sort of
2: given an uh, an efficiency number, sort of eighty six percent plus, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, up to ninety seven percent. I think it was for the anthracite.
2: So yes, it, it's it's incredible. And and of course, for my sins, I worked in Cardiff for a short time. Um, it was touch and go whether Cardiff was going to be the capital of Wales.
1: Oh really? What were the alternatives? Chester. Isn't Chester? Not in
2: Wales. It w- well parts uh, parts of Chester are in Wales, but the boundary would have been changed. Okay, I was
1: going to say. I feel like one of the prominent facts about your capital city is that it should at least be. In your country, that feels like a, <laughs> a, a must-have, capital-wise. Yes,
2: uh, I, I agree. But part suburbs of Chester are in Wales, anyway.
1: So, do you know why Cardiff won out in the end? Is there a, was there a final reasoning? Uh, put it like this: It was the official capital. Uh, it was,
2: or oh, the the, uh, the de jure capital, uh, as opposed to the de facto capital, which has always, in in modern times, been uh, Cardiff.
0: What about the language, Paul? How familiar did you become with the Welsh language while you were working there?
1: I didn't. Despite your excellent display of the word hello earlier.
2: <laughs> well, I think you should should be able to say hello in most languages.
0: It is an extraordinary language, though, don't you think?
2: Well, it's a Celtic language, so it's very similar to Irish and Scots, Gaelic and Cornish and Breton. I think, I think it's like French. It's an inflexive language, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> what does that mean for? Oh my God! Uh, the endings change based on sense. So, uh, you know, the verb endings change whether it's first person, second person, third person, singular, plural, etc., etc. <gasps> and at that note, I'll let you sing along. Sure, guy. Sure, guy. Sure, guy. Sure,
0: guy. All right.
2: Hey, come on up. Um, there's a quite a bit there. Could you do the thirty percent offer that I got through? Mm-hmm. Okay. I there was an email about that. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you very much. Right, I'll see you, you. see you next week. Goodbye. Bye, shirt guy. Bye, shirt guy. Love you. Bye. Bye, shirt guy. Thanks for the shirts <laughs> and the thirty percent discount. That was great. It's Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm sorry, but does that honestly make you happy
0: doing that? It really yeah, does. Yeah, it really does, yeah.
1: <laughs> More than you could 30% discount? Know. That's amazing.
2: How can you hear that? <laughs> Jesus Christ, it's nothing secret.
1: Uh, But actually, talking about the Welsh language, when I was looking at uh, a little bit more about the Welsh language, what I came across was Patagonian Welsh. From South America, Patagonia. From South America. I was like, what's Patagonian Welsh? I... Pulled, tugged at the thread, as you do, yeah. and I went down the uh, internet rabbit hole to find out that uh, there is a community of Welsh people in the far south of South America, in, in Argentina.
0: Is that taking uh, Welsh miners there to dig there for some reason?
1: No, it's, it's actually unrelated to mining. So what happened was there was a guy called Michael D. Jones, who was a nationalist and a preacher who wanted to establish a Welsh overseas colony. Uh, and he chose Patagonia because the Argentine government offered a bunch of land basically to be settled and that settling of the land would help them claim that land which was uh, in dispute or unclaimed at that time so basically what happened was uh, two people Captain Love Jones Parry and Lewis Jones visited the Patagonian area and they went back to Wales and went this place is great we should totally settle it it's going to be awesome when was
0: this? this was in 1862 that's a long journey in 1862 to Patagonia and
1: back yeah but as they explained it's uh, they said it's a bit like the low country in Wales you're going to love it Uh, which was quite the lie actually where they in 1865 153 Welsh settlers arrived in Patagonia in a tea clipper called the Mimosa and uh, they found what was basically an arid (laughs) semi-desert which not, not, not very Welsh at all what they brought with them was tailors cobblers carpenters brickmakers and miners they did have miners. Uh, I'm just going to quote from Wikipedia at this point because this made me laugh. There were few farmers. This was rather unfortunate, particularly when they discovered that the attractions of the area had been oversold and they had landed in an arid semi-desert with little food. They had been told that the area was like lowland Wales. So what did they do? Did well, they survive? They made a go of it. They trekked across the desert, apparently with all their belongings in a single wheelbarrow. A bunch of people died, but a, you know, they, enough survived to establish a settlement. They expanded. They grew out. Other, other countries also settled the area over time. But there are now, consequently, an estimated 70,000 Patagonian Welsh. And apparently, after the Falklands War, while they were shipping prisoners back to Argentina, I guess, the Welsh guards who were guarding the, the prisoners were stunned to find one of the prisoners talking to them in Welsh. <laughs> <to> go- <laughs> So yeah, there's about, uh, they say there's about uh, 1,500, somewhere between 1,500 and 5,000 speakers of what is known
0: as Patagonian Welsh, so Welsh from South America, to this day. So it's kind of evolved, the language, to have sort of a more South American feel to it. Yeah, and it blew my mind
1: that there's this Welsh-speaking community thriving in Southern America.
0: Well, how about that? One of the more startling facts that you mentioned during the show was that a pit pony was worth double the cost of the life of a miner.
2: Yes. Of course it would be.
0: Yeah, well, that's, you say of course it would be, but I'm stupid, and so I had to go and look up and see exactly the reasons why pit ponies were as useful as their value determined.
1: Yeah, I guess there's two interpretations, isn't there? One is that pit ponies were very valuable, and the other is that human beings were massively undervalued.
2: Yes, but pit ponies can't think. And that's valuable? Well, yes, because they can't create unions, can they?
0: Ah, that's why I'm the most valuable one out of the two of us, Pete. <laughs> anyway look i thought i'd look into pit ponies a little bit and see why they were so important so uh, now generally the pit ponies were sort of a mixed breed pony they were about four feet tall tiny little things now they were bred especially to be working horses they weren't just taken off a field and shoved down a pit the successful ponies needed to be strong sure-footed and with a calm temperament And once down the mine, they spent their entire working lives there. An average of around 20 years uh, underground. They lived in the subsurface stables, often in complete darkness. They worked eight hour shifts with rest times every year. So every 12 months, they'd be brought up to the surface to graze on grass in the sunlight for a couple of days, just before them being taken back down for another year of darkness.
1: That's the pony equivalent of that 15 minutes for lunch, isn't it? (laughs)
0: Yeah. And of course, the working conditions were as harsh for the ponies as it was for the men. There was a high risk of death or injury, things like exhaustion, dust inhalation, vitamin deficiency. Those were all common among pit ponies. In fact, in the larger mines, they actually built hospitals underground for the ponies. They had specialists go down there who were employed to check their health, uh, massage their muscles uh, if it was needed, and set up makeshift slings to put the ponies in to sort of keep them up if they had injured their legs or something to help let them set. So they'd just hang there in the dark (laughs) for for days. And of course, when it came time for the pit ponies to retire, they were often put up to auction or salt to other mines. But of course, then there were those that were just too old or too injured and would just be sort of abandoned in fields or slaughtered. Tragically, in some cases, when the mines closed, the owners would strip out all of the machinery and then just leave any of the ponies down below. They'd give them rations of food, lock the gates and just leave them there, trapped underground to just die. Uh, And in fact, there are reports now of inspectors who've gone down there in the past couple of decades and found groups of skeletons huddled together in the tunnels where these ponies have just spent their last remaining days together in the dark
1: horrific that is horrific and as ever Bert coombs has something to offer on this he says i remember one horse which was quite docile outside but when taken into the colliery he became a demon no two men could handle him and when at last he was taken out to be sold for use in a coal cart he became quiet at once a most sensible horse once he was taken outside he would calm down basically he says the usual comment of the miners when they see a fresh horse taken underground is poor devil another that won't be long before he's meat for the dogs Wow. So, yeah, it was a hard life. Miners, you know, they understood how grim it was down there and they understood the ponies had similar problems.
0: I did read a story about uh, one particular pony and uh, his favourite thing was rolling onto his back and having the miners scratch his belly. And apparently the (laughs) miners' wives would get quite upset about this because they'd come home with this coarse grey hair stuck all over their uniforms that they'd have to then scrub out and get (laughs) clean.
1: (laughs) <laughs> and actually, that's reminded me of something that I, I had only had managed to share a fraction of what I talked with Kerry Thomas about in the mines and the, the history of the mines. And we talked a little bit about the Sankey Commission. But one of the things that the Sankey Commission introduced, but it took a while to be embedded across the industry, was, was pit head baths, which... It's just one of those things that, on the face of it, is a really trivial thing, but actually had a massive importance. So what the Sankey Commission said was the pits should, and it took them a while, but they eventually did, provide bathing facilities at the pit so that when you came out from your shift, you could bathe and go home clean. It
0: seems like nothing, doesn't it? But actually, that had all sorts of knock-on impacts. And what's these baths look like? They're big communal baths, I'm guessing. You're not going to have one bath with a long queue behind it of individual miners all having a go.
1: Yeah, well, in my mind, it's like the football after bath. Everyone has a bath. I'm, I'm sure that I can't imagine the miners were too uh, modest in terms of they've already spent a very hard eight hours sweating and stripping off under the ground with these guys. So I don't imagine they had too much to hide at that point.
0: Yeah, but having heard about the mining company management, I can imagine one small bath with (laughs) half a cup of warm water in it that everyone has to share.
1: Technically, we have delivered on our promise.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, No rubber duckies for you guys. Oh,
1: yeah, you know they stinted on the rubber duckies.
0: So, Peter, just to follow up on my pit pony research, I did want to tell you guys about one of the most famous pit ponies.
1: OK, I, I
0: didn't know that. Were there, were there, was he a performing pony? <laughs> what did he do exactly? Uh, but no, we're not actually talking about a male pony. We're talking about a female pony, a mare called Winnie. And uh, Winnie worked for over 18 years at a colliery in Cumberland, in England. She was born in the 1880s, and she was bought by the mining company at just four years old. Uh, She worked 10-hour shifts, six days a week, for a total of 45,000 shifts. During which time it was said that she hauled over 90,000 tonnes of coal. Uh, Her handler said that she was reliable and had no serious accidents. In fact, in 1912, when she retired, she was nearly 30 years old. And uh, she only retired because she'd just started to develop arthritis and some breathing issues.
1: You say that like it was her choice. (laughs) It's like, oh, I guess I'll have to retire now. (laughs) She
0: was only allowed to retire. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, and so the company did, they they did retire her. And as a reward for her long service at the mine, they gave Winnie a, uh, a patch of ground, her own patch of ground, to graze on for her remaining years. And her retirement made the news because various different publications reported this with headlines talking about Winnie as something of a minor celebrity. Nah, so Pardon intended. <laughs> I'm just glad you guys got that. Yeah, and so with her being in the news, of course, people then reading the news and loads of fans of Winnie started to emerge. People writing her letters, sending her gifts, and even travelling to go and see her. sometimes internationally, to come and see Winnie the Pit Pony. But yeah, so after her retirement, she died two years later in 1914. And after retirement, to celebrate her life, her body was handed over to a taxidermist who preserved her. She was then put on display at the mine company's office, where she stood for 60 years as a tribute to all of the work of the, all the pit ponies. So she couldn't get away from it. She had a two-year gap, and she was there for another 60 yeah, let's years. Let's so, this harness on you. Like, no, not for eternity. <laughs> (laughs) Come on! (laughs) What happened to it after that? So, so I'm glad you asked that, because uh, her body was then donated to the Coal Mining Museum in Cumbria, where it became one of the most popular exhibits for the next four decades. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to rest! I just want to stop! (laughs) (laughs) Well, funny you should say that, because in 2018 the museum announced that Winnie's Hide had deteriorated beyond the point of further restoration. So, out of respect for her remains, they decided to remove her from the public exhibit. And today, Winnie's remains rest in storage in the museum's in archives. storage?
1: Put it! Look, just... Bury the poor pony, give him a break. Oh my goodness. <laughs>
0: and so they buried her in the mine, <laughs> <laughs>
1: harnessed to a row of trams <laughs> so that she may forevermore trudge up and down <laughs> the dark tunnels. <laughs>
0: Hey, she had two years. Oh, what, do you, what more do you want? I had oh, oh,
2: four years before that, so come on. She had quite a good life, you know.
1: I'll oh, Bear that in mind. If someone feeling grim at work. I'm like, is this a Winnie the Pony situation?
0: <laughs> anyway, Winnie, I raise my glass to you. I salute you. Now, Peter, you told us a lot about the lives of Welsh miners. I did. But it was very male-oriented.
1: Yes, yes it was. That was the, the way of things
0: under the ground in a Welsh mine. Well, was it? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I thought I would have a look and see, what were the women doing? Were they down the mines? Were there female miners? Um, so, yeah, sure enough, in Wales and across, uh, you know, much of the UK, certainly during the early 1800s, there were many instances of women working underground in a number of mines. But legislation came in in 1842, which looked to restrict the number of women that were working underground. It was just seen as being unseemly. So, children, yeah, women no yes that's right children uh, literally at the age of 8 were working down in the mines but women no uh, not not the place for them to be And so this continued into the 1860s, when a more rigorous law kicked in, which prevented them taking any employment as coal miners in British mines. So it really pretty much just stopped that. And that legislation continued well into the 1920s. However, women did work for Welsh coal mine companies during the 1920s. They were a minority, and they had mostly administrative roles. Uh, But a census that was taken in 1921 revealed that four women, Women were officially listed as coal miners as their occupation in Wales. That's four out of 220,000 miners, or 0.0018% of all the miners were female. Woke mining! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Now, and the reason they were listed as coal miners is slightly unclear, because there was a small exception in that law, that legislation that was passed, which said that women could work in the coal industry only if they had a technical engineering or a support role. And so while we don't have any records about these four female coal miners, it's likely that they did work at the ground level. They weren't underground. So they were doing things like pumping water. They were doing ventilation monitoring. They were sort of carrying for pit ponies, that sort of stuff. They certainly just wouldn't have been inside the actual mines, right? That would have been definitely an unsuitable duty for women. It's probable, in fact, that the women were widows or daughters of miners who had been killed or seriously injured inside the mine, and that would have left the family without any income whatsoever. So they just took over and did minor duties just to keep some sort of wages coming in. But they weren't doing minor duties, were they?
1: It's minor non-minor duties.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, alternatively, and this is interesting, Pete, comes back to something you were talking about, it's also possible that they were part of the group of the Blacklegs. Oh. Those that crossed the picket lines to work in the mine during the strike. And that's because there are reports of a couple dozen or maybe more Welsh women volunteering during this time to work in the mines just temporarily while their husbands were on strike. And so when the strikes finished, most of them just went back back to being in the household, but the mining companies may well have kept on just those four because they had been considered as being the best of that group or that they had something to offer.
1: That's got to make for a tense home life, like Uh, um, How's the strike going? Well, you keep going to the mine and mining. Stop mining. This is not helping our cause.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Either way, those four are considered pioneers in the Welsh coal industry as being the only real female contingent during the 1920s. How about that? It's remarkable. Well done. Women can do anything. Except dig underground. (laughs) Yeah, not that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well look, here we are, gentlemen, serious faces on, because we have come to the end of the line, and it's time for you, Peter Goddard, to step into the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. I'm ready. Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes. Then will the defendant please rise? Sure. All right, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Your Honour, as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on factual content. I
2: alluded to this earlier, didn't I? I was surprised that there were so many facts about coal, and for a nerd like me, I found them very interesting. Yes. Especially as my grandfather used to be manager of a coal works, and I remember my mother saying that they always used to get the best coal. I, I remember that, thinking, well, how could they be best
0: coal? But now I know. Now you know about that. Wow, I yeah. brought
1: your childhood alive. Just saying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Quiet in the dock. <laughs> your honour then, may I please have your verdict on factual content? For factual content, I shall give Peter
2: a... Straight B. <laughs> <laughs> he,
1: he toyed Did with you me think there. But a a okay. I, for a moment, uh, my heart fluttered. For a moment, <laughs> uh, I thought, "That's okay. I need to share this with Kerry Thomas anyway." So uh, we'll share a B. That's fine.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, Your Honour. Then may we uh, next ask for your verdict on entertainment value?
2: Well, I found Kerry very entertaining, and I could listen to him for ages. I can't really say the same for your singing. Yeah, that's fair. So, well, this is a bit of a curate's egg, I suppose. So,
0: entertainment value I shall give... C+. C+. Plus. Wow, this is going well in your, in your way, Peter. Yeah, I have to Peter. thank
1: Kerry for that, mostly, I think. I hope of you're
0: it. happy. OK, then, Your Honour, may we please have your verdict on Dursley Factor. What? Well,
2: As I said, I had low expectations about this, and so I was expecting this to be a bit of a run-of-the-mill one with no particular things that I didn't know. However, I stand corrected there, and I I think uh, I enjoyed this
0: one. That is remarkable. We very rarely hear... A very pleased judge, so... He said uh, well, enjoy, Peter. Let I, the record that. show. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously I had very low expectations. Understood. So may we have your grade for Dursley Factor.
2: OK, for the Factor, I
0: shall give... B+. plus. B+. plus. That is so nearly an A. A adjacent. Well, there you go. We have now reached the final verdict. But before the judge passes his ruling, Peter, you have an opportunity now to enter a plea. If you choose to do so, please make that plea now.
1: It is only now that I realise that I really should have got Kerry to record a plea for me. (laughs) And his mellifluous tones would have won me over into the A area, but uh, I failed to do so, so I will say nothing instead.
0: Sounds like an excuse to me. (laughs) <laughs> well there you are, Your Honor. There is nothing left to present. The defendant stands before you. Have you reached a verdict? Yes, I have reached a verdict. In which case I would ask most respectfully for your ruling. So
2: I was pleasantly surprised, as I said, for this one, and I think I can't quite give you a B plus, but I think I should give you a straight B.
1: B, or to rephrase it, good. That's good. That, put it in the book, Ryan, I'm taking it.
0: Okay, well, look, there you go. That is the show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on this show or just to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website at HHEPodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at HHEPodcast.com. We love hearing from you guys and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. That's right. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation there goes a really long way to helping bring the show to new listeners.
1: Now, if you're on the social business, on Facebook, Instagram, X, you can find us at HHE Podcast. Subscribe to those. You'll get an alert when we post any trivia, tidbits, news or photos. Or you can send an email to Pete and Ryan at HHEpodcast.com with a subject line newsletter and we'll package them up for you and send them out in one big Direct Your Inbox goodie bag.
0: And we're going to be back again very soon with our next episode, our Christmas oh special. <laughs> God,
2: why are why, you... Uh, we're back to this bloody... Oh,
0: come on. <laughs> 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 why, don't you...
2: why, why, why don't you do a Saturnalia episode or something interesting, something different? Jingle bells, Dursley smells, Ryan, Ryan
1: gets
0: an A. <laughs> an a. <laughs> no, on
2: both of those counts.
0: Uh, but there you go so yes the christmas episode is upon us everyone hang in there it's coming soon it is going to be jingle bells in turkey during 1400 to 1600 but in the meantime a huge thank you to the judge himself thank you paul my pleasure and that is it i guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to
1: Okay, so Ryan, I, I had loads of things that I researched that I didn't bring to the episode because we only had so much time, and frankly, there was even coal specifically was more than enough for the episode, but uh, that's what the verdict is for, right? So I'm going to bring one other the things that I didn't talk about, and that is the village called Port Merion. Okay. But yeah, Port Merion, you, have you heard of Port Merion? I mean, I, it sounds familiar. Paul? Y- you'd have seen it. Yes, I, 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 I've been to Port Merion. So then you will know Port Merion is in a way a village that is a famous Welsh actor because it is the village that plays the village in the TV show The Prisoner. The 60s surreal, peculiar Patrick McGoohan show The Prisoner. And it's still open now? It's still open now. They have uh, the prisoner conventions, I think, every year as well. So you can go oh, nice. to, more. most recently, I think there's a chessboard that they added to the village based on a chessboard that was in the village in the prisoner. So they're really leaning into the prisoner side of things, I think. Right.
0: They must bounce a ball throughout the village. At you would some hope way, so, right?
2: wouldn't you? Well, a, 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 big air, a big weather balloon. Yeah,
0: because in the TV series, there was a big giant air balloon that chased people and would capture you in it right
1: yeah it stops stops you getting out doesn't it the big ball that chases after you but uh, yeah there you go there's a little celebrity village in wales for you
2: yes that that, that was an interesting program actually because patrick mcgillian was the executive producer so he had a lot lot of say in it basically after they filmed about eight or nine episodes and it was a 12 or 13 episode run they didn't have any more stories So they sort of just made the last ones up.
1: Like improv. (laughs) I'm going to bounce a ball at you. You just (laughs) take it from there. Yes, and
2: Sort of, yeah. And it it was sort of very odd because he went off to film something else halfway through one of the episodes. So they then had to make up this episode of him lying on a table and then someone else was the prisoner.
1: I can get behind that. That's the kind of thing. That's the kind of mother of invention that I like that creates peculiar things that i enjoy
2: it was always weird but it it got a bit random
1: yeah i enjoy a weird show but i like that weird show to kind of wrap up in some reasonably sensible way you can't just be weird for your own sake and then go that was all
0: i can think of a number of different modern day shows that are very similar to that that have no real end
2: yeah well you're right there About i wish television programs sort of had an ending
0: yeah well everything needs an ending including this section lang flare welehen golo 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 gosh